a team we have, hey? Let me give myself sort of yeah. Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see you. My name is Rob, for those that don't know me. And uh, just trying to get the sound sorted out, just um, get it started. Those that are online, as uh, Morgan said, uh, we really do want to welcome you, some of our regulars, Malcolm and Sam. I'm assuming you're watching now and not uh, on your bicycle ride somewhere. Rob and Denise this evening, and uh, even possibly my son Ethan might be watching today. So uh, we, do, we want you to be a part of this meeting today, and this word goes out of you as well, but obviously to us in here as well. And uh, we're starting a, a nine-part series now, a nine-week series, um, where we're going to preach on three things that we felt God speak to us about at the beginning of the year, and which we, when we did our three days of prayer and fasting, these were the things that we really prayed through. Um, we felt God speak to us about justice, about His presence, which we've sung about tonight, this, uh, this morning rather, and, um, and about His gospel. And actually, when I was, I was in South Africa early on in the year, uh, well, actually, it was, yeah, I came back on the 1st of January. We had been in South Africa for a few weeks, and the new year was beginning. I was saying, God, what do you want to speak to us about in this year coming up? And one of the phrases that dropped into my heart was, the gospel must go. And it felt to me, with all that's going on around us in this crazy world of COVID that we're living in these days, and isn't it just crazy? It's like, like nothing seems, well, so many things don't seem to be the same. That with the uncertainty, um, it, had, it had almost been like the pause button had been pressed on the gospel. We were churches, some churches haven't met for more than 12 months now. People weren't sure about where they were going to end up living, about their jobs, whether they could get home. And like some of these really important things that like the gospel just, you know, like on your TV, I need to just press pause here, or you're doing a hard workout and you go, <gasps> and you press pause quickly so you don't have to carry on. And... Uh, as the year started, I felt like God said, press play again, because the gospel must go. And I want to read an amazing scripture to you from 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9. Um, Paul writing, obviously, to his, his uh, pupil in the faith of a man, a, a godly man in his own right. He says, always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. And because I preach this good news, I am suffering and have been chained like a criminal. Isn't that a wonderful testimony for us who are called to preach the good news? But this is the, the part that jumped out at me. But the Word of God cannot be chained. What if you could just say that with me this morning? But the Word of God cannot be chained. One of my um, favorite guys to quote is a, is a man by the name of Leslie Newbegin. He was a missionary into India, spent decades there, and um, I think like 30 or 40 years before he came back to the, the UK and realized that actually the United Kingdom needed missionaries as much as India did. And, uh, but he wrote this about the church as he um, sought to stir the church into action. He said, the church is the pilgrim people of God. It is on the move, hastening to the ends of the earth to beseech all men to be reconciled to God and hastening to the end of time to meet its Lord who will gather all in one. And so we, I think it's clear to us and to all of us, not just to those of us who are in full-time ministry, nothing I say today should be an indication that God's trying to rip you out of what you're doing and put you into like a full-time ministry kind of role. If that's the call on your life, wonderful. But for most of us, that's not the call of our life. For most of us, the, the, the call to ministry is in our offices, in our neighborhoods, in our, on the playgrounds, wherever it is that we find ourselves, and we are all called to proclaim the gospel. I say, Lord, what is it that is hindering the proclamation of your gospel? Because it's felt like that. I've been preaching 
Actually, my last four preachers have all been gospel preachers. Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and then two preachers since then have been focused on the cross and on the finished work of Christ. And one of my low moments, and, and this is probably in my, my humanness more than anything, but it was on Easter Sunday, I preached my heart out on the, on the wonderful good news of, of uh, Christ's death and resurrection and what it meant for us. And, and then I was going to uh, make an invitation for those that hadn't yet come to salvation um, in Christ to, to respond to Him that evening as I preached the message. And I looked around the hall, and I, and I said this, as, but as I was saying it, I realized it wasn't true. I said... Um, I don't know the spiritual condition of everybody in the hall. And as I looked around, I realized, I do, I do. These are all members of our church. They are believers. They're following Jesus. And I wanted to look around and see some people that, that I didn't know, that, that were not followers, that maybe they were even hostile to the gospel, that had come in that day and heard the good news. Because what I wanted to see on that Sunday night was somebody responding to the gospel message, because that's why we are here, is to carry this message of salvation. And I said, Lord, why are we not seeing the gospel bearing fruit in the way that it should, especially actually in a time like this? I mean, this, in the time of shaking, is when the hearts are open more than ever. Isn't this the moment when the foundations that we build upon are exposed? Like, like I've built my life upon money, and then you suddenly realize as you can't um, you know, even go to work, or you lose your job, and, and, and the economy is dipping, that actually I can't depend upon that, or I've built my life upon my family, and you can't get to see them, or somebody passes away, you can't even get back to be a part of their funeral. What is it that we've built our life upon? Have we built it upon Jesus, or upon these other things that can be shaken? And so as I was having this conversation with God about it, He took me to the book of Nehemiah, one of my favorite books. It's a, it's a kind of Go get it, kind of book. It's um, it's a story of a man who uh, helped rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And to give you a little bit of context, and then we're going to spend our time in that book looking at the way, the the things that hinder us from preaching the gospel. So in 586 BC, and this timing thing always is weird because when we go BC, it's obviously the lower the number gets, the further on we're moving. So 586 BC, it, um, the southern kingdom had been in such a rebellion and um, uh, you know, just re rejecting God in his ways, that God finally lifted his hand off it, and judgment came upon Israel and Jerusalem. And the, the Israelites were exiled and carried off to Babylon. Um, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, I think, came in, rips down the walls of Jerusalem, because that is a picture of the city being healthy and whole, is that the walls are up and the gates are up, and he rips them down. Like, you've got no defense. No one's going to come live in a city without walls. And so he knew it would be abandoned. He destroyed the temple, took all... The, the contents of the temple with them, 586 B.C. And then in 537 or 538, so about 50 years later, um, God, as God had promised, the exiles start to come back into Jerusalem. Remember, it's working B.C. It's working towards a particular date, which is when Christ will come. All of time works towards that. And God was wanting to bring Israel back and restore that city so they'd be ready to receive the Savior when He came. There's a, there's a redemptive work of God that's taking place here. And so they lay the foundations soon after they arrive back, the, the, the exiles. They have a great party, like a foundation wedding party. They pull out the wine and the beer and they celebrate and they're shouting and weeping and dancing. The temple foundations are in place. And then... Um, just as they think things are going well, the enemy comes against them. There's opposition, and they all put their tail between their legs and don't do anything. For like nearly 20 years, they just don't build. Until 516 B.C., the temple finally is erected. 
Now, obviously, the next thing to be done, 516 BC, is that the walls are going to go up. And you would imagine within the next few years, that's what they would do. But 61 years go by, and the walls are still broken down, and the gates are still burnt. And when Nehemiah hears about this, um, he, he cries out to God. He goes before um, the, the king that he's serving. He's a cupbearer to the king, and he asks him to send him back, if he can go back to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls. And the whole story of Nehemiah is exactly that. Nehemiah goes back, and he, he rallies the people around him, and they build the walls and restore the gates. Guess how long it took them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? After sitting for 61 years without being completed, guess how long it took to do, to do all of the work of rebuilding the walls and putting the gates in? 52 days. 52 days. For 61 years, this generation hadn't completed what they needed to do. It was like a whole generation hadn't served the purposes of God for them. They hadn't fulfilled the mandate that God had placed upon them. And I said, I think it was last week, that every generation has a mandate, has a responsibility to serve their generation. We do. The gospel was preached in a time before us. The gospel will be preached after us. But will we proclaim the gospel in our lives? And will we do the work that we need to do? Or will we be like that generation of Israelites that I don't know what they were doing. They were building their own houses, planting their own vineyards. They were not doing the work that God had called them to. And throughout Scripture, we see this picture of the proclamation of the gospel compared to the rebuilding of ruins. And one of the places where it's, I think, most beautifully seen is in Isaiah 61. If you know your Scriptures, you know that that was the Scripture that Jesus pulled out and read at the beginning of His own ministry. And it says this. I'm going to read bits and pieces of the, of the verses. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Remembering this is Christ applying this to himself, but then he gives us this ministry as well. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the, the devastations of many generations. And so, friends, you're called to be a builder. That's what God's called you to, to do. You're going to go into places, into somebody's home, into an office, into somebody's life, into a nation, and you're going to rebuild the ancient ruins. I often say this, that we are, as believers, twice bought, twice bought by God. You were created by Him, therefore you belong to Him. And those that have come to salvation have been redeemed by Him, bought a second time, and so we belong to Him. Every single person on this earth was created by God. Their, their, their ownership actually belongs to God. The fact that they have rejected Him and don't know Him means that they are the ancient ruins. And we go with this gospel message to rebuild those ruins that they might become a habitation for the Lord. And so I think we can look at the book of Nehemiah and say, those things that stop Israel rebuilding the walls are the same things that hinder us from carrying this gospel message to the nations. I'm going to touch on a few headlines, and then I'm going to dive into one of the points in quite a bit of detail. First four things which just, I'm going to touch on quickly. The things that hinder us from proclaiming the gospel is a lack of prayer. In chapter 1 and verse 4, the first thing that Nehemiah does when he hears the message that the walls are down is he begins to pray. And friends, I believe we need to pray. Be it Ignite Prayer on Wednesday night. Be it Unite Prayer on the third Monday of every month. Um, get into your closets and pray. Pray when you're driving in your car. When you come across somebody, you shake their hand. 
just say, Father, won't you reach this person? When you um, go jogging and you jog past somebody coming in the opposite direction, say a prayer for that person to come to salvation. Because yours might be the only prayer that ever gets prayed for that particular person. Take every opportunity to pray. The second thing that hinders us is a lack of humility and repentance. Nehemiah just falls before God and he owns the fault of Israel. I mean, he's sitting in another country. It can't be his fault. But he doesn't point his fingers and go, you know, this is his job or her job. He just says, God, this is something we should be doing. He doesn't think that he's too important or I'm the cut bearer to the king. Somebody else should be doing that. But it's all about task to proclaim the gospel. I need you and you need me and we need each other. We need the other believers in the city and we need the other believers in this world. There's a humility um, in actually doing this together. The third thing that hinders us is a lack of visionary leadership. I do think that um, leadership is so important. Leadership in our homes, leadership in the spheres that we're a part of, and obviously leadership in a place like, um, um, like the local church. Leadership in nations. I can't go into these, though. Fourthly, a lack of wholehearted participation, and I will dive into this. But in Nehemiah chapter 3, you'll see that it wasn't Nehemiah that rebuilt the walls. He led it, and he did part of the building, but he can only do so much. He can only do what man what one man could do. It actually required everybody to participate. And in order for us to be able to rebuild the ancient ruins here in Dubai, in India, in South Africa, in Australia, and wherever it is that God would give us an assigned field, we all have to participate in that. And so you need to stop disqualifying yourself from being a part of that or excusing yourself from being a part of that and saying, well, that's for somebody else to do. I'm going to sit in church, mind my own business, tithe 40%, and uh, just get on with it. I'm sure none of you are tithing 40%, but maybe, who knows? The final one, and this is the one I want to dive into this morning, that hinders us from rebuilding those ancient ruins is the opposition of the enemy. We have a real enemy. His name is Satan. He's a person. He's a spirit. He has demons with him, and they actually they have a, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do know that there is this um, person that is against what God wants to do, and against those that belong to God. And He will be at work to distract us and detour us and stop us from doing this work of building. In the book of Nehemiah, there are three men that kind of become the picture of that. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Imagine being recorded in Scripture to be the enemies of God's work, like, like those names are known forever. I wonder if anyone's ever named their child Sanballat after, <laughs> after this. But uh, what we see throughout this building is that they are continually at work and with satanic tactic to try and stop the work. They, they're busy all the time. While Nehemiah is trying to build, they're busy trying continually to stop it. And that same antichrist spirit is at work today to stop us from this work of rebuilding that he's given us. In Nehemiah 4 verse 1, and chapter 4 is where there's a cluster of, um, of these tactics, especially in verses 2 to 4. He, it says this, Now Sanballat, when he heard that we were building the wall, and let's change that, now, when Satan heard that will of life were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and jeered at that church. So what are some of his tactics that we need to be aware of and counter? Number one is Satan will emasculate you. In chapter 4 and verse 2, he says, what are these feeble Jews doing? God comes to Gideon, and when he greets him, he says, um, greetings, O mighty man of God. But Satan comes and whispers into Gideon's ear, you're a worm. You're the the least of the least. You're less than anybody else. He reminds us of how weak we are, how vulnerable we are. 
He was at work in Moses when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And Moses, instead of saying, yes, God, I'll do what you've called me to do, says, God, who am I? I'm a nobody. Please, Lord, send somebody else. And friends, we'll see that one of the things that Satan does, that one of the, 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 the most effective ways that he can lie to us, and he's the father of lies. That's what Jesus calls him. And so we need to know that whenever he's speaking, he's lying. Even when it sounds like the truth, there's something in there that is wrapped in a lie. And so what he does is he puts like bacon around the disgusting thing, whatever's in the bacon, like broccoli or something like that. And all you see is the bacon. You think, man, I'm going to eat this. And then you put it in and there's broccoli. Oh, what have I put in my mouth? I actually like broccoli, but that's besides the point. I know most people don't. But, um, but Satan takes the truth. He wraps it in a lie. And the truth is we are weak. The truth is we are vulnerable. But God chooses the weak to serve him. He chooses the weak to do his work. Paul, who none of us, I think, would consider to be weak, understood his own weakness. And uh, when he went to God and said, God, can you, like, I'm, I'm, I'm just falling short all the time. Whatever the thorn on the flesh was for him, and there's various views about it, he said, can you take this from me? And God's response to him was, in, he says, my grace is sufficient. Then he says in verse 9 of, of 2 Corinthians 12, my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul goes on and says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. So instead of getting like, oh, you're right, devil, I am so weak, and how can I do this? We should be going, you're right, devil, I am so weak, but that just means that God's power can be all the more evident in me. Who, how is it possible for me, I mean, I know who I am, to be standing up and preaching the gospel in Dubai or to go to India and do a preach the gospel there? It's only because of God. And if Paul can say that, then so can we. And one of the wonderful things that we see in Nehemiah chapter 3 is that um, the list of people, because the list is all the different people that were rebuilding the wall, is not your typical construction worker kind of guys. It's not, you know, you're not, not going to go to construction sites and bring those guys because it was everybody put their hand to it. And so there were, there were jewelry makers that were rebuilding the wall. So these hands that are, are able to work with fine gold are suddenly picking up these big stones and cleaning them off and putting them on the wall and placing them. There were perfumers that were building the wall. Shalom and his daughters rebuilt the section of the wall in front of their house. And so we've got this picture like, I've got to be like this to be the builder of the wall in front of my house. And God says, I'm using everyone. I'm using every one of you. And no matter how much the devil comes to emasculate us, we need to move on like me. I need to move on. Number two, Satan will tell you that you're alone. In verse two, again, he says, will they restore it for themselves? The devil's not all that inventive. When he finds something that works, he uses it again and again and again. Uh, he knows lust works and greed works, and uh, convincing us that we're on our own works. And it's a common lie that he tells us again and again, you're on your own, there's no one there that's with you in this. Elijah thought he was alone. He, uh, he was fighting this battle against the prophets of Baal. He has this incredible victory, and then suddenly he falls into this depression, and he says to God, I'm the only one left. This is so hard, God, I'm the only one. There's no one else here to help me. And God says, buck up, boy. There's 7,000. It's not just you. I've got 7,000 that have never bowed their knee. I've got 7,000 that have never kissed the idol. Remember last week when I preached, I spoke about Matthew 28, 19 and 20 being our commission. And at the end of that, it says, behold, or remember this, don't lose sight of this, that I'm with you always to the end of the age. And we're not alone. Look around you in this room. You're not alone in this call. On 
Every second Wednesday, we gather together with the pastors from the city. We were, we were in one of the other pastors' homes as we praying, as we uh, from his apartment, we could look over the city. We were not alone. We're together with these pastors. Some are struggling, some are victorious, but we're standing together. We're not alone in the city. We're not alone in the nations of the world. There's a billion plus of us, um, sons and daughters of the Lord God Most High. We are not alone. We, we will and can win this battle. Thirdly, Satan will impose upon you illegitimate expectations. In verse 2 again, he says, will they finish up in a day? <laughs> what a stupid thing to say. Will they build this wall in a day? And Nehemiah goes, no, we're not going to build it in a day. We're going to take 52 days. or whatever. It'll take as long as it takes us. We're going to build the wall, though. And it's so easy for Satan to do this because the task is so ridiculously huge. How do we reach billions of people? How do we go into nations that have had thousands of years of a, of a, a faith that is hostile to the gospel, that is, that, that is so much a part of the culture that if they even come to Jesus, it, they, they get ripped out of families? I remember hearing a story about a guy that came to Jesus in Bahrain, and um, his mother stabbed him, and his father threw him through a window when he came to faith. Now, how do you reach people like that with the gospel? Guess what? His mom and his dad came to salvation eventually as well. See, the gospel is able to break into the circumstances that we can't even imagine. But the enemy seeks to make us feel like it's so vast, like there's so much to do that it, he paralyzes us in action. Well, I can't save the whole of India, so I may as well just do nothing. I can't reach everyone in my office, so I may as well do nothing. The question is not what is the task for the whole church, and for every age, but what is the task for you in this time? What is your assignment? What is our assignment? Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says, but we will, boast, we, will boast, we will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us. That's what, that's what we need to pay attention to. What is the area of influence that is assigned to us? And what is cool about the story in Nehemiah is, Nehemiah went to one family and said, hey Dylan, won't you and Robin, and I know Alistair's one of your mates, won't you build that section of the wall in front of your house? And uh, Morgan, won't you grab some people that are staying with you in that house, all those wire guys, and won't you build that section of the wall in front of your house? And, and Tanya and Rika, uh, won't you grab Hink and Paul and your boys, and won't you build that section of the wall in front of your house? That's all we need to do, build the section in front of our house. Who's your neighbor? Who's your colleague at work? Who's the person that God brings upon your path? in a shopping center. 15 times in Nehemiah chapter 3, it says next to him, next to him. I'm doing my work, next to me, somebody's doing theirs, and next to them, somebody's doing theirs. Will of Life is doing hers, and next to us is City of Dreams and Field of Dreams Church, whatever, I don't know. <laughs> 44 different people groups are mentioned, or people or groups are mentioned in chapter 3. That's it took these 44 clusters of people to rebuild the wall. It wasn't one family that did it. It wasn't one man. And at the end of the day, as we pursue God and, and do what He's called us to, we will be able to say, as uh, the enemy did in Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 16, this work had been accomplished with the help of your God. We do our part, and then God does His part. Number four, Satan heaps condemnation on us by reminding us of our past. Will they revive the stones, the accuser says, out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Satan's name, the word Satan literally means accuser. That's like, like you know what you're getting when you, when you come to like, accuser. Oh, hi, accuser. You, what, what do you think he's going to do when you meet him? He's going to accuse you. That's what he does. 
And he comes to us and he accuses us of all the things that we've done wrong in our lives. We are, we, and as we listen to him, we come to understand that we are damaged. We may, maybe we feel like we're damaged because of sexual immor- immorality that we've committed in the past. Maybe we've had addictions. Maybe we've hurt and betrayed other people. Or we've been hurt and betrayed by those who should love us. Maybe we've been the, the victims of sexual abuse or substance abuse or whatever it is, but there's this, it's so easy in the world that we live in to, um, to be damaged, to be burned like that. And the devil comes to us and he just points out the obvious. There were burnt stones. Nebuchadnezzar had set the city alight, knocked the walls down. The stones were burnt. And what the devil is saying is, you can't use burnt stones. They messed up. You may as well toss those away. You'd have to go find new stones. But God looks upon us and he doesn't, he doesn't agree with the word of the accuser. In fact, he rebukes the accuser and he speaks a different word over you. He doesn't see you as damaged. He sees you as redeemed. There's a restoration work that God does. It is ridiculous, friends, that the worst of sinners, Paul calls himself the worst of sinners, should be someone so loved by God, so used by God. And Paul was saying, he said, like, like, like you can't even argue with me. I would argue that Paul was the worst of sinners, but he says, don't argue. I'm the worst, and yet God redeemed me. So I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what you've done, but and you think you're a burnt stone and you're unable to be used, but you are not. Joshua was the high priest from when the temple was rebuilt to halfway kind of through that 60-year period until the wall was put up. And one of the guys that was prophesying through that time was a man by the name of Zechariah, and he had a prophetic vision one day that involved Joshua. And I want to read it to you in, in, in a few verses in Zechariah chapter 3. It says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now, put your name in where Joshua is, okay? And then he showed me Patrick standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at the right hand to accuse him. Picking you out, Patrick. And the Lord said to Satan, I agree with you. Now, he didn't say that. He said, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is Patrick, Rob, Linda, whoever, uh, uh, a brand plucked from the fire? Now Patrick, Rob, Linda, whoever, was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken away your iniquity. Oh, I'm sorry. I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Our mistakes, the things that damage us and mark us, God takes it off. Takes it off like this. He puts upon us the the righteousness of Christ. And so when he looks down upon us, he doesn't see the brokenness and the damage and all that stuff that that we think disqualifies us. He sees a son or a daughter that's able to be, you're the perfect stone to go into that wall that God wants to build. And that's why we can stand with Paul and shout out. I remember hearing a man preach from Romans chapter 8 once, and it builds to this crescendo, but it starts off with this point in Romans 8, that there is now, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and it just goes, and it builds, and it builds, and it builds, until he gets to like verses, whatever it's 38 or 39, something like that, and it says, and nothing can separate you from the love of God, and friends, nothing can. I'll do two more, and then I'm going to land. Ish. Satan will belittle your work. He will undermine your work for the kingdom. Verse 4 says, If a fox goes up on it, he will break down this stone wall. What? You call this a wall? 
And then he starts, yo mama, he starts this whole thing of like trashing whatever you're building like this. If even a fox gets on your wall, it's going to fall down. And Satan wants us, whatever we're building, whatever we're doing, to come to the point where we go, actually, he writes, Satan, I am useless. My work amounts to nothing. I'm just going to stop doing this. Maybe you've been following the Lord for six months and you feel like that. Maybe you've been serving him for 20 years and you've got to the point where you kind of go, actually, I've had enough. It's, honestly, there's been times in, in the season that I've been in Dubai here. Where I've laid in my bed some evenings and I've said, Lord, please let me just go back to Deloitte. I'll, I'll sit in the back of the church and be quiet. I won't cause trouble like some of these other people that are causing me trouble. And I'll tithe. I'll tithe 20%, Lord. I'll, I'll even give you double if you just let me go back again. And it's in those moments that the Lord reminds me that He called me not so that I would have self-actualization or this incredible sense of satisfaction in my life. He called me because it was a task to be done. And some of you friends have been given a task by God. And Like, like for example, if, if you love building people up and investing in people, and you've got this incredible um, gift, I suppose, to, to journey with people along the way, and you devote yourself to that, and you walk with them through the valleys, and you, you hold their hands when they fall, and you lift them up, and then along the way, they just turn their back from God. They just turn away, and, they, and they, maybe they, they slander you, or they say bad things about you and, you, and you, and then the devil comes in at that moment, he goes, you're flipping useless. You call that working for God. Look what's happened to that person. And you go, you know what, devil, I agree with you. The fox will knock down the wall. I may as well not even carry on building. But friends, we don't know what God will do when we bring our loaves and our fish to him. We don't know what he will do with the seed that we put in his hands. I was telling the story in the first meeting about Aunt. I think I probably got it wrong, Aunt, but I'm going to use it anyway. Because I've got a vague recollection of how he shared it. But Aunt um, was invited to an Alpha course, and I think he did it, but didn't get saved. And then sometime later, he ends up in another city somewhere, and there's a moment where God's beginning to stir in him, and he sees a billboard. He actually asks God, like, a question like, how, how, like, what must I do? Where are you? And uh, down the street, he sees a billboard with a, the alpha big question mark on it. And he goes running down the street to get the details from that, and ends up in a church and ends up getting saved. So the person that first invited aunt would have thought, like, how useless am I? I've, in, I've invited him. I'm sure the story is completely wrong. You can get the real story from aunt later. There's, but it's somewhere in that region. Um, but how useless am I? I've invited him. He's come to this, and there's been no fruit. We don't know what God's going to do with what we bring before the Lord. The enemy is a liar. He is a liar. We don't listen to him. We listen to God. Sixthly, <laughs> Satan threatens to kill those you love or to kill you. This is a real uplifting point, this one. Verse 11 says, this is the enemy speaking, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop their work. A few months ago, Sajid and I had lunch with a German couple who were very old when we met them. That's even older now. But uh, they told the story about when they were in their late teens or 20s, they'd come to, they got saved. They'd been saved as youngsters got, and as a saved couple, they'd married. And their goal was to go to India with the gospel. And so they went to Sri Lanka to a base there where they were going to start being trained and prepared. And almost by accident, they ended up in Kashmir and uh, started to work there. And they, they told us about the incredible hand of God and the wisdom that he gave them to start this work in a profoundly hostile environment. But then things began, the opposition began to come to the building. And they, they, were, they faced real threats to their life, not slander, not like, oh, you're such an ugly Christian, you're so horrible, or you're a hypocrite, you know, all the things that make us buckle it down these, oh, what if he calls me a hypocrite? Who cares? You know what they had? They had bullet holes 
in their cars from where they were gunned at. The compound that they'd spent years building, there was a house and a home for women that had been abused um, and rejected, was burned to the ground. They, their lives were threatened. They were, they were told that if they did not leave, they would be killed. And many of those that were with them left the country. And, uh, but Jesus said to them, do not fear him who can only destroy the body. And I'm not saying, friends, that we're careless and we just throw ourselves into like the worst possible scenarios without any thought about it. You know, one of the things they said to us that they learned that they hadn't understood before this crisis came, they only learned afterwards, was the need for spiritual warfare. They understood actually we do have a real enemy and he really does want to come and destroy us and destroy our marriage and destroy our children. And so, man, we better have our armor on. We better have our, our weapon in hand to fight him and we, and we need to contend against it. Friends, we need to be fighting. That's why we need to be at these moments like Ignite Prayer. And you need to be in your closet praying for the gospel to go out. Um, uh, this last week, we, there's been lots of prayer going out for India. And, uh, and we do pray, and we do pray for God's grace because of the coronavirus. But I'm praying for the gospel. I'm praying for the gospel. What is a prophet a man if he gains the whole world and recovers from coronavirus and has the highest antibody count of any human being on earth but forfeits his soul? It's the soul that matters. Nehemiah 4.23 says, So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the God who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, the armor of God. Each kept his weapon in his right hand. You're building with your left. You're carrying the rock. You're putting it in place. The sword is ever in your hand. Are you ready to fight the battle? Number seven, Satan tempts you to evil. I can't tell you about that. Number eight, Satan threatens to damage your reputation. You'll have to get the notes. Number nine, Satan leads you into presumption. Sorry about that. Number 10, Satan brings, Satan brings you down to his level. In Nehemiah 6 verse 2, and these guys have tried everything. They've thrown everything at Nehemiah, and it's just not working. They've like, <laughs> I mean, the, the, this man is, you go read it. It's an amazing book, an amazing sense of clear resolve he has for the rebuilding. And so they try one last thing. Nehemiah, why don't you come down and negotiate with us? We want, we want to live in peace with you. We want to win-win with you. Come and let's negotiate. I want to say, friends, you never negotiate with the enemy. You never make a truce with the enemy. You never try to come to terms with the enemy. Nehemiah understood it, and we need to understand this. It's an ambush that will harm us and stop the work of God going forward. And we negotiate with the enemy whenever, we, whenever he brings us to a place where our focus is on something other than the high calling of God. Now, I don't mean that you live like, I've got to be an elder and I've got to be paid by the church. No, that's the last thing I'm saying to you because the vast majority of us, that's not what he's called us to. But every single one of us is to be a light wherever we are. We are to be the voice of the gospel being proclaimed. We are to be the hands of Christ. We'll be the feet shod with the readiness to proclaim the gospel. That's why we are here. Friends, that is why we are here. And when our focus shifts onto something else, when we start building another kingdom as a priority rather than the kingdom of God, then something has gone wrong. When, um, and there's reasons why we would. Sometimes the battle gets harder. I mentioned to you that after a few battles here, yeah, I'm ready to go back to Deloitte. You know, let, me, let me go, Lord. Let me, let me uh, as if it would be easier. I'm thinking, though, know, the temptation comes to think that there's some neutral ground. There's some place where the devil's going to just leave me alone. And, and sometimes it kind of, he does sort of, you know, like if you, 
If you just give your attention to your career and you start turning your back on the things of God, the devil knows, perfect, that's exactly, you do that. If he can't stop you, he's going to distract you. Sometimes it's because the other things around us seem to offer more reward. It's like, I'll get more joy out of building my family or more joy out of building my health or more joy out of building my finances or career or whatever it is. But Paul says, keep your eyes fixed on the great prize. In Philippians 3.14, he says, I press on. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Why don't you guys um, stand, please, with me. I'm going to finish now. The worship team come up. In uh, 2017, very close to now, the 13th of May, Tanya had a word that I'm sure she cannot remember at all. But it's in our prophetic book, and it's one of the reasons why we keep this book. She said, yeah, she said, I saw a chessboard close up. She said, the focus is on the king and the queen. The pieces had been very intentionally placed. There was only one color of pieces, so this is not a game with two sides. Picture that in your mind. So just the white pieces, for example, on the board. I felt like God saying, he doesn't play games with his people. You're not a chess piece being moved around like, like a, a pawn that God doesn't care about. It doesn't matter what happens to you. He's, there is a chess game being played. There's only one set of pieces on it. God is the only one that has the power. Goes on and says this. He is deliberate and specific. This is not a fight between two sides because the outcome is already decided. God is the one in control. He has the moves already set out. When those men sent that invitation to Nehemiah to come and uh, negotiate with them, to find a truce, to find a win-win, he answered them in like one of the best answers. You know, like when somebody says something to you and later on, like two hours later, you think of, oh, why didn't I think of that at the time? Yeah? Well, Nehemiah got the absolute perfect answer to that. He said, go tell them this. I'm carrying on a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Here's your new begin again. It says, the church's witness among the nations is at heart the overflow of a gift. The boldness and expectancy are the marks of those who have been surprised by joy and know that there are still surprises to come because God is great. He has surprised us by joy. He has captured our hearts with the wonder of the gospel that we who have the created, fallen, the enemies of God have been the objects of His love, so profound a love that He would send His only Son to die in our place. And we have been forgiven and redeemed and rescued and adopted and our eternal destination is secure. One of the, the pains of being a spending as much time as I do wrestling around theology is that sometimes I wrestle with some of the words of songs. That, si that line, your presence is like heaven to me. It's not biblically accurate. See, the presence of God in this life is amazing. There have been moments where it's been unbelievable. It's like, it's like a taste of heaven to me. Because in heaven, everything that causes sin and every sin will be taken away. Every hurt and every pain will be removed from us. Every separation between us and God will be taken away. There's a, there's a future that God is calling us to, and He wants us to go out there and invite others into that future 
as well. I want to pray for us and then we're going to worship God. The gospel must go. Lord, we hear your cry upon us. And we do pray, Lord, that we would be Nehemiah type of builders. We could be like Shalom and his daughter, the perfumer, the goldsmith. That we would be like the priests and the, 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 the rulers who built in front of their houses. Thank you, Lord, for our office that we go to work, for our classrooms, for the playgrounds around us, for the shopping centers. Thank you for the man and the woman we meet in the streets. Thank you for friends and family around the world. Thank you for the, the signs here that you've given us as Well of Life Church. For our friends in India and Sri Lanka, Zimbabwe and Mozambique and Pakistan and Nepal and Thailand and England and Wales and America and wherever else we are. Thank you that as we build, Lord, you have brothers and sisters like us building protection of the wall in front of this house. And there will come a day when this wall will reach its full height and Jesus Christ will come back to take his own. We love you. We thank you, Lord, that we are redeemed, that we are ready to be used. We rebuke the lie of the devil over our lives. Satan, I rebuke you. I thank you that these, Lord God, are your people and that you rebuke the enemy. I thank you that they are not damaged. They are not useless. I thank you their contributions are meaningful. And I thank you that you would use them this season ahead for, the, for the, the rebuilding of the ancient ruins and the places long devastated. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.